Okay. Hello and welcome to Sport Professor Podcast, a show for the sports student and fan who wants to learn more about the underpinnings of the sporting world. I'm your professor, Dr. Drew Sikansky, and today we will once again deep dive the world of sport law as we examine the First Amendment, freedom of speech, and its intersection with the world of sports. Beginning with a quick discussion of the construct of free speech, we will then move to break down the First Amendment, focusing on why the Founding Fathers fought so hard to guarantee people the right to express themselves, before ending with a conversation about what type of speech isn't covered by the Amendment and how it all ties back to the world of sports. So, if you ever wondered why athletes lose sponsorships for what they say, or why broadcasters, writers, and commentators can say almost anything in the eyes of the court, this is the podcast for you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of the Sport Professor Podcast. Today, I want to keep going along the same lines as we have in many of our recent podcasts by combining a topic that is all over the news in the world of sports with legal constructs in history. More specifically, we're going to talk about freedom of speech, the First Amendment, and defamation in sports. But before we dive into that, as we always do, we need to set the table and go back to the beginning to help explain why we as Americans value the freedom of speech so much. And in doing so, we'll be able to better understand why things play out the way they do today. So where does this idea of free speech come from? Really, the idea of not only having but valuing The freedom of speech comes from the ancient Greek philosophers, individuals like Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, all the way back in the 5th century BC. Beginning with Socrates, these men generally felt that people could not help what they believed, and thus it was the duty of those who knew the truth about a situation, a topic, or an event to correct, teach, and educate those who didn't. The way of teaching they ascribed to accomplish this was having people question freely what they encountered, including things like politics and political leaders, so that a discussion could ensue and everyone could arrive at the right conclusion. Aristotle, who was a student of Plato, probably described this idea the best in his own writings when he said, quote, Man is much more a political animal than any kind of bee or any herd animal. For, as we assert, nature does nothing in vain, and man alone among the animals has speech. Speech serves to reveal the adventurous and the harmful, and hence also the just and unjust. For it is peculiar that man, as compared to other animals, that he alone has the perception of good and bad and just and unjust and other things of this sort. And partnership in these things is what makes a household and a city. End quote. In other words, he believed that the ability to speak is a human attribute that was given to us so that we could talk and discuss and engage in debates to determine what is right and what is wrong. In large part, thanks to the promotion of these ideas and the principles, many in ancient Greece and cities like Athens enjoyed considerable freedoms when it came to speech. As History.com notes, quote, During the classical period, Parasitia, that is, the freedom of speech, became a fundamental part of democracy of Athens. Leaders, philosophers, playwrights, and everyday Athenians were free to openly discuss politics and religion and to criticize the government in some settings. End quote. However, while some ancient societies, like the Greeks, spoke of valuing the freedom of speech, oftentimes this valuing was relatively short-lived. While the idea of allowing people to speak freely and challenge authority, politics, and religion seemed to be a good one, the notion of free speech was often only supported until the ruler of a society or the leader of religion was challenged. It was often at this point that the freedom of speech was torn away from the people and individuals were jailed and even killed for expressing their thoughts and beliefs. In this way, throughout history, especially European history, 
There was a great deal of conflict with the idea of free speech between political leaders, religious leaders, and the common man. A prime example of this was the Protestant Reformation, which began in 1517 when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of a church in Wittenborough. This was an act of free speech, speaking to the corruption of the Catholic Church at the time, mainly the selling of indulgences. Luther wrote and posted a list of ideas and thoughts that went against the Catholic Church. This was seen as blasphemy by the church, but led to a number of new sects of Christianity forming. This act by Martin Luther serves as a great early example in history of an individual using the idea and notion and value of free speech to speak up against an authoritative figure and challenge what they were doing. However, it also serves as an example that there are consequences for oftentimes using that idea of free speech and speaking up against a political or religious figure or institute, as Martin Luther was excommunicated from the church. Looking at other examples of the effect of free speech, this time on government, we can go back to the English kings to see how they oppose free speech and being challenged on what they did. England, who had themselves broken away from the Catholic Church in 1543, was a monarch whose king believed they were given the divine right to rule by God himself. As such, they often spoke out and even looked to ban and outlaw others from speaking up against them. Maybe most notably was King James I, who sought to restrict the speech of Parliament, which, for those of you who don't know, Parliament began as a system of advisors to the king in the 13th century, made up of knights and nobles, and slowly grew to be a legislative body that discussed and debated and approved the actions of the king. According to historian John Joseph Kerrigan, King James believed that he was the one who controlled Parliament and was, quote, the source of all power since his office existed prior to theirs. End quote. Kerrigan goes on to say that in 1621, quote, the king informed the commons, i.e. parliament, that they could only confer with him on such matters as he chose to permit them, and that their duty was to petition him for laws which he made and ratified. They were not to censor him, nor his politics, nor to discuss the prerogative either directly or indirectly, end quote. However, Parliament vehemently disagreed and issued the Declaration of Freedoms in 1621, stating, quote, In the handling and proceedings of those businesses, every member of the House hath and of right ought to have freedom of speech to propound, treat, reason, and bring to the conclusion the same. Meaning Parliament established that they had the right to say and debate whatever they wanted, that it is their freedom of speech that gives them that right. This declaration was later reinforced in the English Bill of Rights in 1689, which was signed into law after the overthrow of King James II by William III and Mary II. The bill gave increased power to Parliament and established specific rights held by the people. Specific for our conversation today, it said, quote, The freedom of speech and debate or proceedings in Parliament ought not to be impeached or questioned in any court or place out of Parliament. The English Bill of Rights said what philosophers had been arguing for some time, that speech was a natural right and that all people should be able to speak freely without fear of retribution. However, it's important to point out that the section in the Bill of Rights that spoke of free speech noted that only those people in Parliament could say whatever they want without that fear of retribution. And so retribution still happened for the commoner, specifically in the English colonies, with maybe the most famous example being Benjamin Franklin's older brother James Franklin being arrested and jailed by the general court for, quote, insinuating that the Massachusetts authorities were not making proper execution to capture a private vessel reported to be off the coast, end quote. James, at the time of his arrest, had been running the New England Courier and had printed these comments against the government. 
So when he was imprisoned, his 14-year-old brother Benjamin took over the courier. And on July 9th, 1722, Benjamin spoke of the value of free speech in a letter he wrote under the name Silence Do Good. This was the eighth of 14 letters Benjamin published under that name. And in that letter, he lays out the argument for the necessity of free speech in a society. He said, quote, Without freedom of thought, there can be no such thing as wisdom and no such thing as public liberty without freedom of speech, which is the right of every man, as far as by it he does not hurt or control the right of another. And this is the only check it ought to suffer and the only bounds it ought to know. This sacred privilege is so essential to free government that the security of property and the freedom of speech always go together. And in those wretched countries where a man cannot call his tongue his own, he cannot scarce call anything else his own. Whoever would overthrow the liberty of a nation must begin by subduing the freeness of speech. That men ought to speak well of their governors is true, while their governors deserve to be spoken well of. But to do public mischief without hearing of it is only the prerogative and felicity of tyranny. A free people will be shewing that they are so, but by their freedom of speech. The administration of government is nothing else but the attendance of the trustees of the people upon the interests and affairs of the people. It is the interest and ought to be the ambition of all honest magistrates to have their deeds openly examined and publicly scanned. Only the wicked governors of men dread what is said of them. End quote. Franklin goes on in this long letter to discuss how important the freedom of speech was to the early Roman Empire, leading to a thriving nation. However, he points out that when that speech was quelled, things started to turn, saying, quote, But things afterwards took another turn. Rome, with the loss of its liberty, lost also its freedom of speech. Then men's words began to be feared and watched. And then first began the poisonous race of informers, banished indeed under the righteous administration of Titus. End quote. He concluded the letter by saying, quote, The best princes have ever encouraged and promoted freedom of speech. They know that upright measures would defend themselves and that all upright men would defend them. But I doubt not, but old Spencer and his sons, who were chief ministers and betrayers of Edward II, would have been very glad to have stopped the mouths of all honest men of England. They dreaded to be called traitors, because they were traitors. And so, when they, the rulers, are honest, they ought to be publicly known, that they may be publicly commended. But if they are knavish and pernicious, they ought to be publicly exposed in order to be publicly detested. End quote. Reading these sections of the Silence Do Good letter that Franklin wrote in The Courier harken back to what the likes of Aristotle, Socrates, and Plato spoke of. That free speech was needed so that individuals could speak up against their government and challenge those individuals in power. He points out specifically that the only way to keep checks and balances on those people in government, specifically kings and rulers, is to allow the common man to question what he is doing openly without fear that that question will result in some type of harsh penalty, something like being put in jail or even death. So Franklin establishes in this letter a foundational American belief, tying in those old philosophers to what he's saying. But he wasn't the only founding father that truly believed in the value and need for free speech in a society. Other founding fathers, like Thomas Jefferson, also was known to be a major proponent for free speech. And this is shown in multiple ways in legislation that he proposed in his home state of Virginia. But you can also see it if we look at influence that he had in France's Declaration of the Rights of Man. This is France's version of their constitution which lays out the rights that all men have. Right 11 
which was written by Anor Millerbrew, reads, quote, The free communication of ideas and opinions is one of the most precious of the rights of men. Every citizen may, accordingly, speak, write, and print with freedom, but shall be responsible for such abuses of this freedom as shall be defined by law, end quote. The reason I bring up France's Declaration of the Rights of Man is not just because one of our founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson, had a major influence on its writing, but also to point out the key differences between France's Rights of Man and the English Bill of Rights that was written some years earlier. In the English Bill of Rights, we said specifically that Parliament was granted the freedom of speech. Well, France took that a step further and extended that freedom of speech not only to those in the government, but all men. Not surprisingly, the 1789 Declaration of the Rights of Man and the 1689 English Bill of Rights, as well as that Silence Do Good letter and the thoughts and theories of those ancient Greek philosophers, all heavily influenced the Constitution of the United States and, important for our conversation today, the First Amendment. While James Madison wrote the First Amendment, it was really Thomas Jefferson again who pushed Madison to include free speech as an essential civil right that all Americans should be guaranteed. Just as the other scholars and philosophers of the time and before him, Jefferson believed that free speech was not only an essential aspect of democracy, but a natural right that all men have and that the government should protect. He had seen men in the colonial days jailed for expressing their displeasure with the English government and knew how important it was to feel safe to speak up when the government was breaking the social contract they had with the citizens. This ideology and history all led to the original version of the First Amendment being presented to Congress on June 8, 1789. And that original version reads, quote, The people shall not be deprived or abridged of their right to speak, to write, or to publish their sentiments. And the freedom of the press, as one of the great bulwarks of liberty, shall be inviolable. After debate in the House and the Senate, the amendment was slightly changed to include protections for additional ways of individuals expressing themselves, like assembling and petitioning the government, which we've talked about in a past podcast. In the end, in 1791, the First Amendment, which is a part of the entire Bill of Rights, was ratified and added to the Constitution. The final version of the First Amendment read, quote, Congress shall make no laws respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech, or of the press, or of the right of the people peacefully to assemble and to petition the government for redress of grievances, end quote. And while the First Amendment was largely symbolic until the U.S. Supreme Court's ruling in a case known as Gitlow v. New York in 1925, today the amendment stands as one of the most often discussed and misunderstood amendments by both people in casual conversation and the media at large. So now that we understand the history and the reason for the inclusion of the freedom of speech and expression in the Constitution, Let's move to break down some of the popular misconceptions of the amendment and start to tie this all back into the world of sports. And to do that, let's begin with maybe the comment that I hear the most as a professor, or maybe a better way to say it is the question that I get asked the most about when I teach the freedom of speech in a sport law course. And that question often goes something like this. Well, how can they fire so-and-so for saying that? The First Amendment says that they have the freedom to say whatever they want, which is a great starting point for a discussion of the First Amendment. But the answer actually has nothing to do with the First Amendment because what you have to remember is that the First Amendment, just like all the amendments of the Constitution minus the 13th, speaks to what the government can and can't do, not what private companies can do. Let's take a step back here to explain this. In in order for any amendment of the Constitution, as we said, minus the 13th, to apply to a situation, you have to have what we call state action. This is actually the first thing that a court would look at when you file a claim that your constitutional rights have been violated. They will ask, was there state action? 
We've talked about this in past podcasts when we talked about the 14th Amendment and the 4th Amendment. But just a quick recap. State action is defined as any action that's taken directly or indirectly by local, state, or federal government or any of the components or employees like a sheriff who use the color of law, which is claim of legal right, to violate an individual's civil rights. So when the government does something, there's state action, and the Constitution applies to that. Or when a non-governmental entity performs a task or activity or does something that the government would generally do, then there is also state action and the Constitution applies. Or if government resources are used, then there's also state action. So if you're at a state park or a federal park or even a private park, then the First Amendment applies. Or if you work for the local, state, or federal government, then the First Amendment applies. But if you work for a private company, the First Amendment, and in fact, all of the amendments to the Constitution, don't apply to you. Now, if you want a more in-depth discussion of state action, I would encourage you to go back and listen to those previous uh, podcasts we did on the 14th and the Fourth Amendment because we have a much longer discussion of it there. But that gives you the overview and enough understanding that we can move forward with our conversation today. So if we go back to the initial question that I often get, which was, why was that person fired for what they said? I thought the First Amendment allowed people to say whatever they want. The first point we have to make to them, or that I have to make to them as my student, is that the First Amendment only applies when there is state action. So in sports, if you work for the NBA or the MLS or the NFL or any other professional sports league or even a team within that professional sports league, the First Amendment does not protect you because there is no state action. Those are all privately owned organizations. So if you say something that pisses off your boss, then they can still fire you. Which brings me to this second important thing that we need to point out with the First Amendment. And that is what the First Amendment actually protects you from. The First Amendment protects you from being punished by the government or by state actors, which generally means it protects you from being put in jail or fined for what you say. According to the Supreme Court in the 2006 decision, Garcetti versus Sabalos, even if you work for the government, you can still be fired for your comments that you make in the scope of your employment. You are protected, however, from being fired for your comments as a private citizen, though there is a fine line between official job duties and private citizen status. As the Supreme Court noted in their 2006 decisions, which did deal with an individual who worked for the government being punished for what they said, quote, employers have heightened interest in controlling speech made by an employee in his or her professional capacity. Official communications have official consequences, creating a need for substantive consistency and clarity. Supervisors must ensure that their employees' official communications are accurate, demonstrate sound judgment, and promote the employer's mission. Government employers, like private employers, need a sufficient degree of control over their employees' words and actions. Without it, there would be little chance for the effective provision of public services. Public employees, moreover, often occupy trusted positions in society. When they speak out, they can express views that contravene governmental policies or impair the proper performance of governmental functions. As employees are speaking as citizens about matters of public concern, they must face only those speech restrictions that are necessary for their employers to operate efficiently and effectively. End quote. So, in other words, the First Amendment protects us from the government or from state actors punishing private citizens for what they say. That means it protects us from being thrown in jail like James Franklin because we say something that the government doesn't like. It protects us from being fined or even killed because we express our opinion. But it does not protect us from all consequences in all situations. If you work for a private company like the Boston Red Sox and you say something derogatory at work, they can fire you. If you work for a state college athletic department and you start spreading rumors about your athletic director, they can fire you. 
even though the college and the athletic department are governmental entities. So going back to the question we so often get as sport law professors, why was that person fired for what they said? I thought they were protected by the First Amendment. The answer is they were fired because the First Amendment doesn't mean you can say whatever you want to whomever you want and face no consequences. It means you can say almost whatever you want when you are a private citizen and not be harmed by the government for saying it. But when you go to work, you can, generally speaking, be fired for what you say. Let's look at two recent examples in sports where individual athletes got in trouble for what they said. Both situations come from the world of NASCAR. The first, we already covered in depth in a previous podcast on ethical decision-making and the sleeping model. And that was a situation that involved Kyle Larson saying the N-word live while playing a video game. The second situation involves a NASCAR driver, Tyler Reddick, in a tweet that he recently posted. Since we already talked about the Larson situation in recent podcasts, let's focus more on the Reddick situation. On July 6th, Reddick responded to a President Trump tweet and drew heavy criticism and quickly took the tweet down. The Trump tweet referenced the FBI investigation into a noose being found in Bubba Wallace's garage and the decision NASCAR made to ban the Confederate flag. In his tweet, Trump said, quote, Has Bubba Wallace apologized to all those great NASCAR drivers and officials who came to his aid, stood by his side, and were willing to sacrifice everything for him, only to find out the whole thing was another hoax? Question mark. That and flag decision has caused lowest ratings ever, exclamation point. Ignoring the inaccuracies related to the ratings drop, they've actually gone up in lieu of the flag decision. Reddick replied to the tweet saying, quote, We don't need an apology. We did what was right, and we will do just fine without your support. Now, shortly after tweeting this, Reddick drew such criticism that he deleted his tweet. And he later went on series radio to explain what happened and why he said what he did. And in that interview, he said, quote, I think first off, I should say I stand by my comments on Twitter and in support of my friend Bubba Wallace and my fellow competitors and in the direction NASCAR is moving. After reading the president's tweet, I responded emotionally. And soon after, what I posted had become extremely polarizing. Being a young rookie driver in the Cup Series... I did not want to create more division. What we need now more than ever is unity. We need less barriers between us, not more. So the conversation around our sport should be how to support each other and be inclusive. We want everyone to be able to enjoy NASCAR. The question then becomes, if he stands by his tweet and has the right to say what he wants to without fear of going to jail, why would he delete it? In large part, it goes back to what happened with Kyle Larson and what we've been talking about. Freedom of speech does not guarantee you freedom from consequences. Reddick saw the polarizing comments, both supporting him and chastising him, and probably grew fearful that he might lose his sponsors or even be kicked off his team, much like Kyle Larson was for saying the N-word. Reddick realized the consequences for that tweet, for speaking his mind freely, could be severe, and so he acted accordingly and deleted it, which is what we oftentimes see with public comments from athletes and sport personalities. They speak their mind in the moment, knowing they have the right to, but later, when they've had time to think about what they've said, they walk back their comments, realizing that the consequences of their free speech might be dire to their careers. They know that they can say almost whatever they want, but that if they do, they might suffer the consequences just like Kyle Larson did. Which brings us to another important point. Notice how I said you can say almost whatever you want. Because the second most common question I get from students about the freedom of speech is does the First Amendment literally mean That as a private citizen, I can say anything I want at any point in time to anyone and not face governmental repercussions. And the answer to that question is definitively no. While the First Amendment does give us the freedom of speech, the government and the courts have established 
that not all type of speech is allowed. Some restrictions on speech might be obvious to us, such as you can't blackmail someone or you can't plagiarize another's copyrighted material. Those two things are not protected by the First Amendment. True threats against another person aren't protected. In other words, speech that would be classified as assault or harassment is not protected. Obscenities are not protected. Speech that might start a riot or a panic is not allowed. I can't walk into a crowded room and yell fire, for example, if there is no fire. And finally, defamation is also not protected, which is also where we can start to tie in sports even more, specifically in regards to sport media and what they often say. Before we get into the media, though, we first need to make sure we understand what defamation is and where it applies. To begin, we need to first understand that defamation is a civil law. When we say civil, we mean that it is a law that is designed to protect private citizens from each other. The plaintiff in a civil case is the person that is wronged, whereas the plaintiff in a criminal case is the government. The outcome of a civil case is the correction of the wrongdoing, oftentimes the awarding of money or monetary amount to the person that was wronged. Whereas in a criminal case, the outcome might be a fine paid to the government, but it could also be an imprisonment and even in certain circumstances, death. So defamation is a civil statute or a civil law that protects a person from others talking or writing disparaging things about them. More specifically, a defamatory statement exposes the plaintiff, the person harmed, to public hatred, shame, contempt, or ridicule. But wait, you might be asking yourself, didn't you just say that freedom of speech protects people's right to say whatever they want? And that we put it in the Constitution because we believed it was a natural right? If all this is true... Why can't we say whatever we want about other people? Why do they have the right to take us to court and to sue us for what we say or what we write if I have a natural right to say whatever I want? And all those questions and points are legitimate ones that I oftentimes hear from students or other people when we talk about this. But you need to remember two things. First, remember, just because you have the right to say something doesn't mean you are free from the consequences of saying that. That is a point we will continuously come back to. And also remember that this is a civil lawsuit, which means that the government isn't the one bringing action against you, but rather another person. And the Constitution, as we said, only applies to the government and state actors. So making it illegal to make comments that expose someone to public hatred, shame, contempt, or ridicule doesn't violate the First Amendment. Second, you have to remember why scholars and philosophers said that the freedom of speech was a natural right. Remember, we cited multiple writings where they said that people need to have the ability to speak up against the government and to express their views without the fear of being put in jail or killed for what they say. Thus, a defamation lawsuit has nothing to do with violating an inalienable right the founding fathers spoke of in the First Amendment. But I've digressed a bit. Let's get back to what makes a comment defamatory. Legally speaking, there are four things, or what we call elements, we look for to determine whether a comment is defamatory or not. The first is that the statement that is made must be false. In other words, if I make a true statement, regardless of how much it might harm you or expose you to public ridicule, it is not defamatory. Only false statements can be defamation. The second element, the false statement must be either put in writing, which we call liable, where other people can see it, or it must be spoken out loud, what we call slander, for others to hear it. If I just make a comment in my house with no one around to hear it, it's not defamation. It has to be made in the presence of other people or put in an area where other people can see it. The third element, there must be negligence on part of the defendant, the individual that has made the comments, and with public figures, and with public figures, that negligence must be what is called actual malice. What does that mean? Actual malice, in simple terms, means that I know that the comment is false, and I'm saying it or I'm writing it anyways, the harder part 
of this third element is not understanding what qualifies as actual malice, but what qualifies as a public figure. And the courts have established that anyone who quote-unquote thrusts themselves into the public spotlight is considered a public figure. The question that we oftentimes get then is, well, what does it mean to thrust yourself in the public spotlight? And the courts in the law have defined this more. And they say that a public figure is anyone who has name recognition, is a political official, has some notoriety of achievement, or anyone who just thrusts themselves into the spotlight. The first two of these are pretty straightforward and easy to understand. When we think about name recognition, that is anyone who's a celebrity, anyone who's an actor or actress or for our conversation, athlete or TV personality. Anyone who an average American or average person, when they hear their name, they know who they are. So, for example, if I say Tom Brady, everyone knows who that is. He has name recognition, so he is a public figure. And in the court, he would have to show actual malice in a defamation case. Same goes for a political official. Here, the courts have ruled that merely holding an office like president or governor or congressman, by definition, makes that person a public figure. The third way we can define public figure is a little bit more complicated because it's based in being awarded or winning some type of prize, which people oftentimes find a bit confusing. My go-to example here has always been the Nobel Prize. This is one of the most notable achievements an individual can obtain. But if I were to ask you who won the Nobel Prize for Chemistry in 2019, most of you listening would have no idea. The fact that you don't know their name doesn't matter, according to the courts, with defamation because merely the act of winning that prestigious award has made them a public figure. And thus, again, you would have to show actual malice standards when an individual would bring a defamation case. And finally, people who thrust themselves into the public, who push to get their name out there, who seek recognition for something they have done, are also considered public figures in the court's eyes. We can consider this or think about this maybe in terms of social media. People who are purposely putting themselves out there to try to get that recognition could be considered public figures. And with all of these cases, remember, if an individual is considered a public figure in terms of defamation... The third element says we have to show actual malice, that you knew that the statement was false, you said or published it anyways. The final element of defamation is that you have to show actual damages or injury to the reputation of the plaintiff. This can be sometimes hard to show because imagine that I'm a newspaper writer and I publish a story that I know is false about a baseball player saying that he used steroids last year because I have a personal vendetta against him and want to see him cut from the team. Even though the story is false, meeting the first element of defamation, it is in writing and other people can read it, meeting the second element, he is a public figure through the fact that he has name recognition and I do have actual malice against him. Remember, I know it's false and I publish it because I want him to get cut. That meets the third element. All that doesn't matter if he isn't cut or if he doesn't lose any endorsement deals because of my comments, or if he doesn't lose any money at all, then there is no defamation. Because regardless if the first three elements are met, the plaintiff still has to show that what I said or wrote caused them actual harm. If no harm is caused, then the fourth element is not met, and I'm free to go. Which is one of the big reasons that we see stories about players using PEDs so often escape defamation claims. The players might know that the statement is false and might even be able to prove that the report has actual malice against him, but if the comments don't hurt the player at all, then there is no claim. This is a common defense that writers and sport personalities use in defamation lawsuits, but it's not the only defense that there is. In fact, maybe the most common defense is that the comments that were made were actually true and thus, by definition, cannot be defamatory. Other defenses include that the spoken or written comments didn't have any exposure, and thus no one else heard or saw them, or that while the comments might be false, the person that said them had no malice towards the public figure. Again, in both cases, not all the elements of defamation are met, and therefore the claim falls flat. But maybe the most common defense of all is what's known as fair comment, or 
the opinion defense. And this is that the comments that were made were the opinion of the person not taken or not meant to be taken as factual. The law does allow us as individuals to express our opinion, even if our opinion causes harm to another individual. So with all that said, talking about what does and does not constitute defamation can oftentimes be a bit dry and boring. Was a far more effective way to drive home this concept with people is to let them listen to clips and dissect them to determine if all the legal elements are met and if defamation has occurred. So let's go ahead and move to do that. I have three different audio clips that I want to play for you. The first two are pretty straightforward and if they're defamation or not. The last one will spend a bit more time dissecting. In this first clip, you're going to hear White Sox announcer Hawk Harrelson going after an umpire after he threw a White Sox pitcher out of a game for throwing at a player. While some of you might find this kind of tirade to be a bit comical, it's a pretty good example for what we get with home announcers calling games when an umpire referee makes a decision or a call that goes directly against that home team. We oftentimes hear announcers go off on that referee or umpire and sometimes they'll call them names or in this case he berated him for his skill set saying that he was no good and that they should send him back down to the minors so this is a classic example where an individual might say well wait a minute they're making defamatory comments the announcers are making defamatory comments about the umpires about the referees couldn't that umpire referee sue the announcer for what they're saying and the answer is yes they could sue them but they're not going to win in court because while they might be comments that hurt that individual's reputation, and while they might be specifically made to try to hurt that individual's reputation and get them out of the league, the comments are protected because they're the announcer's opinion. And as a matter of law, I am allowed to say what my opinion is. I'm not making false statements, I'm giving opinion statements. And so that's how announcers oftentimes are able to say whatever they want and get away with it because they just claim that it was their opinion. The second example looks at a very famous case from the early 2000s and it deals with steroids in baseball. And I chose this one because so oftentimes we hear players who are being accused by the media or the press of using steroids threaten a defamation lawsuit. This is a case where Roger Clemens, famous pitcher who pitched for the Red Sox, pitched for the Blue Jays, pitched for the Yankees, pitched for the Astros, one of the best pitchers in history, arguably, was accused by his former trainer, Brian McNamee, of using steroids. McNamee was then sued by Clemens for defamation, and Roger Clemens said that the comments were untrue and that McLemy was making those comments specifically to try to cause him harm and that Clemens actually did suffer considerable harm as a result. So this is a clip of the comments that McLemy makes accusing Roger Clemens of steroids. My name is Brian Gerard McLemy and I was once the personal trainer for one of the greatest pitches in the history of baseball, Roger William Clemens. During the time that I worked with Roger Clemens, I injected him on numerous occasions with steroids and human growth hormone. I also injected Andy Pettit and Chuck Knobloch with HGH. The Mitch report documented the pervasiveness of steroids and HGH in Major League Baseball 
and I was unfortunately part of that problem. Later on in that same speech that McLemy's given, he says the following. Make no mistake, when I told Senator Mitchell that I injected Andy Pettit with performance-enhancing drugs, I told the truth. Andy Pettit, who I know to be honest and decent, has since confirmed this. And make no mistake, when I told Senator Mitchell that I injected Chuck Knobloch with performance-enhancing drugs, I told the truth. Chuck Knobloch has also confirmed this as well. And make no mistake, when I told Senator Mitchell that I injected Roger Clemens with performance-enhancing drugs, I told the truth. I told the truth about steroids and human growth hormone. I injected those drugs into the body of Roger Clemens at his direction. Unfortunately, Roger has denied this and has led a full-court attack on my credibility. McNamee goes on from there to explain the attack that Clemens has led and talk more about the injections that he gave to not only him but the other players that he discussed in that Mitchell report. But the question that I want to focus on from this address deals with Roger Clemens' claim and lawsuit against McNamee claiming defamation. Now, this lawsuit ends up getting thrown out of the courts due to jurisdiction issues, but the lawsuit claimed that the comments that McNamee had made both to the Mitchell Report and in Congress were false comments that McNamee knew were false, but made to harm Roger Clemens. So all of those elements for defamation are there. The comment, as Clemens claims, is false. It was made in front of Congress and also in the Mitchell Report, which was then distributed. So the second element is present. Roger Clemens is an athlete, a star athlete at that. So he is a public figure. So you need actual malice, which he claims McNamee made those comments on purpose that he knew were false to cause him injury to hurt his reputation to hurt his ability to get into the hall of fame so clemens claim meets the third element he actually does claim actual damages as he claims his reputation has been harmed and that's led to a number of negative outcomes the defense that mclemie chooses to use though is the defense of truth remember i said a comment cannot be defamation if it is true And regardless of the fact that this was thrown out in court due to jurisdiction issues, I think if this actually plays out and Clemens actually brings the lawsuit and the case is heard, that McNamee probably would have won on that defense because he had ways to show and prove that his comments and accusations were true. And I think oftentimes that's why athletes who are being accused of steroids used are so slow to show or are so slow to take the accuser to court because if they are actually on steroids and it's the truth then they're just going to expose themselves even more to the public in a court hearing the other reason is because you would actually have to prove that the person making the claims knew that the comments were false and that they had actual malice towards you which is sometimes very hard to show All this leads us to the last clip I want us to listen to, which is a clip of one of my favorite sports writers and podcasters, an individual named Bill Simmons. This is back when Bill Simmons was working for ESPN. He has since moved on from ESPN and started his own company, The Ringer. But when Bill Simmons was working for ESPN, he used to have a weekly Monday podcast during the NFL season in which he would have on a friend of his named Cousin Sal, and they would guess the lines to each game. Leading up to them guessing the lines, the betting lines for each game, though, they would discuss what's happening in the NFL, what's going on behind the scenes, just to kind of set the stage. In this podcast, they specifically are talking about the NFL Ray Rice situation and Roger Goodell. Now, for those of you who might not remember the Ray Rice situation, Ray Rice was caught on video hitting his then fiance, now wife, in the face and knocking her out cold in an elevator and then dragging her out. Roger Goodell claimed that initially there was only a video of Ray Rice dragging his then fiance out of the elevator and that he didn't actually see Ray Rice hit her. But Ray Rice admitted to striking her, admitted to knocking her out, and so we just had this video of Ray Rice pulling him out. Ray Rice was initially suspended for a couple of games, and that was it. Fast forward about a month later, TMZ gets a copy of the actual video from inside the elevator showing Ray Rice hitting her. Roger Goodell claimed that he had never seen the video, and that once he did see it, he then upped the suspension of Ray Rice. This clip 
is Bill Simmons talking to Cousin Sal about a press conference that Roger Goodell held that Friday before talking about the situation. I just think not enough is being made out of the fact that they knew about the tape and they knew it was on it. Goodell, if he didn't know what was on that tape, he's a liar. I'm just saying it. He is lying. I think that dude is lying. If you put him up on a lie detector test, that guy would fail. And... But and it, it for all these people to pretend they didn't know is, is such f***ing bullshit. It really is. It's such f***ing bullshit. And for him to go in that press conference and yeah. pretend otherwise, I was so insulted. Right. Well, I I mean, is, is nobody going to lose their job over this? Because if he didn't know about it, which I think he did, his first in command for sure knew about it. Like, they didn't keep the secret from everybody. It's right. just the Ravens' dirty little secret. But so. that's the thing. When you're the leader, you're in charge, and that's it. And you That's take right. accountability, and the people work for you, and ultimately they represent you. And if, if you screwed up as an institution in some way, take accountability for it. In this clip, we have the perfect example of everything that we've talked about today. Well, the First Amendment grants Simmons and Cousin Sal the right to say this and not be arrested for their comments. It does not mean that there are not consequences for what they're saying. One of those consequences could be being reprimanded by their employer, which Simmons was when he was suspended for what he said. But since defamation isn't protected by the first, it's also possible that Goodell could have tried to sue Simmons for calling him a liar. The question that we then have to ask is what chance would Goodell have at winning the lawsuit? To answer that, we just need to apply the legal elements we previously gone through. First off, we have to ask if what they said was false. So in this aspect, we would examine each element of what was played in that clip and the other things that are said in this conversation, and we would break down things like, did Roger Goodell have that tape previously and actually lie about it? We would break down if other members of the NFL had the tape or had access to it and knew of it and lied about it. And if we determined that they didn't actually have that knowledge, then we could say that that statement was false. If they did have the tape and we could prove that, then Bill Simmons' statement is true. And because it's true, it cannot be defamation. But let's just assume that his statement is false. And let's move on to the second element, which, remember, is that the statement either in writing or verbally needs to be made so that others can hear it or others can read it. Well, this is a podcast that is downloaded by hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. So very clearly, yes, these comments are made to the public. The third element is Roger Goodell, a public figure. And if so, was there actual malice on part of Simmons? The first part of that question is pretty easy to answer. Yes, Roger Goodell is a public figure, given that he has wide-scale name recognition as the commissioner of the NFL, and given that he appears on TV, oftentimes in interviews, and with the NFL draft. So, was there actual malice? That becomes a little bit harder to show. In other words, did Bill Simmons intentionally know that what he was saying was false, and mean to harm the reputation or persona of Goodell? This one is pretty tough and would actually be up to a jury to decide. They would have to weigh what is the truth in the matter. In other words, did Roger actually know this? As we said, if he did know it, then that's the truth. So the defense holds and it's not a case. But if it is false, as we're assuming in this scenario, and Simmons knew it was false, and he was saying these things to try to get Goodell fired, then yes, we would have actual malice, and the jury would likely decide on behalf of Goodell. Which takes us all the way to the last point. Did Roger Goodell experience actual damage as a result of Simmons' comments? Well, the NFL didn't fire him as commissioner. In fact, he is still one of the highest paid commissioners in professional sports So we can't say that it's harmed his reputation or caused some actual damage inside the NFL. Has it subsequently caused damage to the NFL? Potentially, Goodell could argue that and show that through him being damaged, it also hurts the league. They can maybe look at ratings and numbers, but that would be pretty hard to show. So since Goodell doesn't lose his job, since as a result of Simmons' comments, we don't see any damages, 
we might have a hard time proving that what Simmons said actually harmed that individual. It's not saying that it didn't, but that is something that Goodell would have to show. And finally, in addition to these legal elements, we would have to look at the potential defenses that Simmons could use. In addition to claiming that the needed elements for defamation aren't there, as we pointed out, if the comments are true, then the first element's not met, the defense holds, and Simmons is not in trouble. But he could also make the argument or rely upon the fair comment defense, as we talked about in the very first clip of the announcer going after the umpire. And he could say that these were my opinions. And because they're my opinions, they cannot constitute defamation. If you pay very close attention, or if you go back earlier in the podcast and listen to his comments, he leads into the comments by saying, I think. By saying, I think, he's denoting that this is his opinion, that these are his thoughts, and that these thoughts are not meant to be considered fact. So taking all this into consideration, the question becomes, who would win this case if Goodell actually filed a defamation lawsuit against Bill Simmons for the comments he made in his podcast? And I think in this particular case, that these two defenses that Bill Simmons had, that first, that his comments were true, and if the NFL is able to show and Goodell is able to show that they were not true, then he can fall back on the fair comment defense and claim that these were his opinions, and he can point very specifically to the language, I think, and that defense would probably hold up. But remember that what we've learned today still holds. Just because we have freedom of speech, which means... That Simmons isn't going to go to jail or be fined by the government for what he says. It does not mean that freedom of speech results in freedom from consequences. For saying what he did, as I pointed out, Simmons was suspended by ESPN, which led to a rift that eventually had him leaving ESPN once his contract was fulfilled. So freedom of speech has its limits. It doesn't mean that people can say whatever they want and experience no consequences. We saw this with Kyle Larson when he said the N-word. He has the legal right to say that. He's not going to go to jail for saying that. But there are consequences. He lost his sponsorships. He got suspended by NASCAR. We saw it with Reddick, who said what he wanted in response to the president, but immediately took it down because he feared the consequences of that free speech. We also see it with Simmons, who experienced a negative outcome for the comments in being suspended and losing that money for the weeks that he was not there. So hopefully, throughout the podcast today, you've learned a couple of things. First, a little bit about the history and why freedom of speech is such a fundamental part to our democracy. The founding fathers, as well as ancient Greek historians and throughout time, people have argued that free speech is needed for us to have an open and fair democracy. We need to be able to challenge the government, the political leaders, and the church leaders of our times to question if what they're doing is right and wrong without fear that by questioning we're going to face negative consequences like being jailed or even killed. Hopefully you've also learned that while we are protected from the government with the First Amendment, it does not protect us from our employers, even if it's a governmental employer. We still can be fired or disciplined in our place of work because of what we say. And lastly, I hope we've learned a little bit that the freedom of speech doesn't protect all speech. We do have some restrictions. The one that fits most aptly in the context of sports is that of defamation. We cannot make comments that are false about other people that are made to harm or disparage someone's reputation. If we make false comments about someone else that does cause harm, the First Amendment does not protect that. In sports, we oftentimes see these rights pushed to the limits with commentators calling players out or calling umpires out, calling them names, talking disparagingly about it. But because it is their opinion, they have a right to do it. We oftentimes see people in the media accuse athletes of cheating, of using steroids, of doing other things that violate the rules of the game. 
they are oftentimes protected because the claims are true. And finally, we've learned that people's opinions cannot by definition be defamatory. So hopefully this knowledge will better situate you to move about the world of sports, to listen to what commentators and athletes are saying and judge it to see whether defamation has occurred or not. And hopefully you'll always remember that freedom of speech does not mean freedom from consequences for what you say. If you have any questions about the First Amendment, I would challenge you to go listen to our other podcast where we talk about the right to protest, dealing with those aspects of the First Amendment. If your questions still aren't answered, please feel free to reach out to us on Instagram at the Sport Professor. Follow us so you can stay up to date with upcoming podcasts and give us ideas for new ones. Until next time, though, we hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Sport Professor Podcast.